So, re-emphasizing a few um, general points um, uh, that, we, that we've already mentioned, but just a slightly different direction on them, regarding conceptions of um, divinity in relation to the imaginal in particular. Uh, let's see. What, one of the things I pointed out about concepts and conceiving, and it's so important, is that it's, it's always going on. So by concepts, I don't just mean um, big conceptual structures and philosophies that need articulating and words. I also don't equate the word conceiving with thinking. Um, so by conceiving, I mean the whole spectrum of um, from all the way from big, complicated conceptual structures like some of what we've been talking about, to include thinking, to include just the subtlest conceiving that's woven in with perception. And so the idea sometimes of um, bare attention or non-conceptual awareness and this kind of thing, it's, it's often quite uninvestigated. Um, uh, one, Easily, those concepts are very attractive, they, they sound very simple, but they betray um, a kind of um, a, a lack of fully exploring the nature of perception and of fabrication. Wherever there is perception, remember I'm using the word perception uh, synonymously with experience and appearance, it means whenever there's any experience at all, any appearances at all, there is subtle conceiving woven in with that. Doesn't necessarily mean I don't mean we're walking around thinking or labeling everything all the time. I don't mean that at all. It doesn't need to be verbal, um, but it, it's wrapped up in 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 perception itself. Conception, perception, conceiving, perceiving are wrapped up together inseparably. No conceiving, no perceiving, and any perceiving involves some conceiving. So that's one point. But the um, point. Uh, another point I really want to emphasize now has to do with vagueness um, it's like if, if, of concepts. So we might use um, words like sacred or not sacred or profane or whatever. And, and such words, it's important to realize, um, they involve conceiving. Of course they do. Um, and, and usually they involve conceiving uh, in, in a vague way. Or if it's not vague, it's uh, at some level contradictory or circular or rests on assumptions, all of that. But the point here is about vagueness. So um, we might say a conception of, we might say um, sacred or divine. And, and what does that actually mean? And even in having gone through all this for hours now, it's like, well, still, what does it mean? And it's hard, as I said, without being circular or without being... It's hard to be really clear and defined and, um, and arrive at some kind of final, polished, demarcated definition or conception. The, the, the conception of divinity uh, is is vague to a certain extent. is is kind of has has a degree of nebulousness to it. But and and this is this is what I want to add here and and really point out this is important. So does the conception of matter. So I say to you, you you might use the word matter or materiality. What does that mean? So just as one might ask, hearing the word divine or God or gods or whatever, what what does it mean? What does it mean? You can we can turn around and ask the same question about matter. We touched on this before. E- either through modern physics, and just go deeply. Well, what do you mean by an electron? What is it? 
What do we mean when we, when, we when we use that? And if I'm talking about experience, what do I mean? Solidity? A sense of solidity? What exactly do I mean? A perception? And through modern physics, um, when we go into what does matter, what do we mean by matter, what is matter, just as we might go into this question of divine, it, is, uh, it ends up being really quite a vague concept. Mathematical equations, in the most abstract mathematical equations, might describe behavior of some uh, matter under certain conditions when it's looked at in a certain way, actually describe probabilities of behavior. But basically, we, we feel, we take for granted that our concept of matter, or, or we know what matter is, but actually, if we go into that, we, we see that actually it's really quite vague. Um, we can have, an, we do have, of course, an experience of matter, even though if we poke our concept of matter, we, we quickly realize it, um, it's actually quite vague and not very deep at all, unless you've really studied a lot of physics or philosophy. Um, but just as we have an experience of matter, undeniably, that we're familiar with, we can have experience of the divine, and the concept remains vague. So, Implicit in all this is something I've, I've said before, because um, as well as being um, involving conceiving and concepts, divine or, or, or sacred or not sacred or, or, or matter, these are all perceptions. And this is the important thing. They are, um, what we're talking about when we say sacred is a perception or, or rather a sensibility, a way of looking. And as such, um, the, uh, the way of looking can be trained, uh, developed, it can be refined, enlarged, deepened, intensified, empowered. So this actually is what should occupy us, this, this uh, training of perception. And regarding conceiving, we want enough maneuverability and flexibility with the conceiving um, and enough... Uh, Conception, conceptions and conceptual structures to sanction um, a sacred cosmopoesis, a, a seeing of sacredness in the world. So, regarding conception, perception is the important thing, the training of perception, we need enough conception to allow that to grow and to support it, and we need to train the perceiving, the sensibility, and that Training of perceiving is what I would say in a nutshell what meditative training is. Meditation is a training of the flexibility of perception. So, we are not, uh, well, actually, let me quote the, the, the Kotzka Rebbe again. So, the um, Or, or rather, let me say this: that in the training uh, of of the perception, there is a there is a, an opening of the range. We've talked about that so much on this retreat, and emphasising that this is what we're wanting to do: open the range for the sake of soulfulness, for the sake of the beauty of that discovery, for the sake of freedom, for the sake of investigation. Um, and so, the conceptual frameworks need to support that opening of, of the range, and the opening of the range of experience and perception then feeds back into the conceptual framework. And the 
um, uh, range then is, is, is by definition is multiple. We can have um, so many different experiences of the divine, especially when we're talking about the imaginal divine. So there is not one correct um, perception of God, so to speak, which we might tend to think, what, what's the right way that God is? What's the real way that God is? We can talk about one sort of authentic experience, if that's even the right word, of the unfabricated, of the Godhead, this uh, deitus absconditus, that's the right Latin, the hidden Godhead, but not of the faces, the expressions, the aspects uh, of of God, the dimensions of God, because uh, in a way they're infinite. And it's uh, about experience here, and there are infinite possibilities. Sometimes in spiritual circles, very easy for people to be um, to latch onto and cling to and chase kind of one kind of experience. Oh, that's it. That's it. Well, the teacher says, "There, that's it. You had it." Or a person is is aiming for has a sense of there's one kind of ultimate experience of the divine. I tasted it. Now I've lost it, or something like that. Um, Yes, perhaps when it, uh, it the, the singularity when when we talk about the unfabricated, but not when we open it up into the realm of the imaginal and the fabricated. So again, to to quote the Kotzka Rebbe, but actually to take perhaps another spin on it, he said, "Where is God to be found?" Question: Where is God to be found? And he answers, "In the place where He is given entry." So you could read that, well, he's everywhere, or it's again, uh, uh, and we don't see him everywhere, her everywhere, um, divinity everywhere. But it's also saying something about this infinite possibility of the, um, uh, of the expansion of the range of perception of experience into all the different faces of the divine and sacredness, the sacred cosmopoesis, etc., so we're talking here about um, empty divine, again, imaginal divine. And the recognition that we're talking about perception, we're never talking about anything other than perception. Everything, as I said, hinges on perception and the fabrication of perception and understanding that, and training, as I said, training that uh, flexibility, training the sensibility is the range, opening the range. And the uh, conceptual frameworks support that. There's this reciprocal feeling, as, as we as we emphasise many times now. So that's one point. Um, the second thing, and again, I've I've uh, uh, touched on this uh, before, um, but just to elaborate a little bit and give an example, um, it's very possible for um, a conception of the divine um, uh, or, or it's very possible for an image to have deeply powerful effect on the being um, an image of the divine to have a deeply powerful effect on the being um, even when we don't believe in uh, as I said that this is real or this is true or, uh, um, and we concretize it and literalize it as a belief so I remember um Decades ago, I think I was in my twenties. Um, <clears throat> I think yes, and um, late twenties. Uh, and um, 
uh, lived in the States, and uh, quite unexpectedly, because I had not grown up at all in a Christian household or education or anything, and was really, um, despite living in uh, a, a culture where Christianity was, well, on the wane, but present um, in England, um, uh, I'd never really been exposed, never really even understood the whole thing about Jesus and the cross and Christ and all this. So I was kind of sheltered from that in, 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 in my upbringing to a certain extent. Um, and then quite unexpectedly in uh, in my early 20s, um, what is it, fell in love with Jesus. Um, very, very unexpectedly. <laughs> and uh, very, very beautifully. And the whole opening uh, of, of, of the heart and the soul in, in devotion touched so so deeply and um, began to enter into that and, and to explore it and I would go um, uh, actually ended up being sometimes more than once a week to different churches um, in, 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 the, in, in Boston where I was living and I would uh, y- usually just visit these different churches and just sit and stand at the back in, in the services and um, would be so moved, moved to tears, would be standing in, in the back. And sometimes it was, you know, the old, uh, uh, the, the, whatever it was, parson or the priest or the, depending on the kind of church and maybe some of these churches really on the wane, you know, there's three people there and they're, and they're in their 80s or 90s and then I would stand at the back and, and just be sobbing um, so so moved by the hymns and by the, the sort of mythos of, of Jesus and of Christ and the parables and the stories and the healing stories and and then talking to people and people would say after after a time getting a little bit involved in that world in, in different different kinds of ways and be like why don't you why don't you get baptized but I, I never felt I could because actually I could not credo non credo I could not say I believe this. Um, and I, I, it, it was a barrier. It, it, there was something um, operating through the mythos, but it was not about belief. Um, so, but, and yet it was extremely powerful, deeply powerful. This sense that emerged the mythos of the divine of God, in this case through particular Christian mythos and, and Christ and all that, um, deeply powerful and important, with without any clear theology. So, um, a the belief wasn't there as a sort of literalized, concretized, grasped at, um, I believe this to be true and real. And uh, again, it was um, the theology, if you like, the conceptual frame was, was not clear, um, was, was vague. Um, the mythos was alive, though, and this is important. And it was interesting, too, I can't remember at what point, um, but somewhere along the line, a, a, a um, books came out following um, uh, scholars' research, and, and, and the uh, scholars uh, of, of Christianity formulated this document called Q. Some of you will know this Q, which they um, said this, these statements, or these sentences, based on our. Um, scholastic and historical research, we can definitively say these statements Jesus actually said. And then there was a group of statements where I think it was sort of probable that he said or possible, and then there was a group of statements where he definitely didn't say this. 
And then following this sort of publishing of Q, I can't remember what, what uh, year that was, there, there were several books, and, and one of them, um, which moved me a lot, was actually Stephen Mitchell's book, I think it's called Gospel According to Jesus, um, and other, other books too. Um, but I had... I also felt, in in relation to that, personally, that um, there was this attempt to portray a historical Jesus, that this guy really lived. And then oftentimes, um, with a lot of the books that came out, they were sort of saying, and basically, this guy actually lived, and he was another kind of um, radical, free, liberated being. In fact, he was a lot like Lao Tzu and a lot like so-and-so and a lot like... So all these guys were kind of similar and he lived with a great open heart and um, I'm, I'm being a little flippant because, because it actually did move me. But something in that, in that, that way of casting the uh, figure and the story of, of Jesus... Um, that, to me, in a soul sense, fell short somehow. It was not that interesting or powerful for the soul. Um, and, uh, in other words, he, he's, he's a, a liberated human being. He's a, a guy who's realized something and then living, so he's not um, a god or the son of God. Or, or that. that kind of storying. And so he's like any other liberated human being. And in fact, all liberated human beings are pretty similar, or whatever. Um, that, attractive as it was, as a soul story, fell short for me. It was not that interesting and powerful, as I said. And, and note, as well, that it's presented as literal and concrete, or at least probable, historical fact. I.e., that story itself of Jesus as purely human, a kind of liberated guy with a big heart, etc., like a lot of other liberated people with big hearts, um, is not portrayed as, as, as imaginal. It's not um, conceived or admitted as imaginal. So there was that kind of um, angle or, or, or take or fantasy uh, floating around, not admitting itself as imaginal, uh, sort of portraying itself as humanist, if you like, in a certain sense. And on the other hand, or at the same time, I was exposed to this sort of um, dogmatic kind of Christolo Christology or basically um, theology that originated, I think, with, with St. Paul. Um, so Paulinian theology is this sort of structure of the Son of God and the Trinity and, uh, and sort of um, that in its sort of overwhelmingness and its complexity, sort of arcane um, structures, was um, attractive to me. Um, in that it offers itself to the imagination, that kind of structure, that kind of verticality of dimensions, and the rich, complex, multi-level and, multi -level and um, textured movement, as we're describing, of eros, psyche, logos, that can enter into that and relate to it and enrich it. And at the same time, that sort of dogmatic um, Christian theology uh, was unattractive to me, if, especially if I felt I needed to sign up to believing it and say, I credo or whatever, and I believe this is true. But again, with that um, theology, again, it's, it's presented, just as the humanist version, is presented as fact, truth. This is a credo that this is true, this trinity and, and all the rest of it, and, and not as imaginal. Something was operating me, very powerful. I couldn't, or I, I did not want to go to one side or the other, really. 
And I could not articulate something back then that how I articulate it now, uh, this is years later, is to say that um, what I realized perhaps intuitively then and could not articulate or realize fully consciously, how I say it now is that the Jesus that matters, the Jesus that matters to the soul is not so much the Jesus of matter, in other words, the flesh and blood, so-called historical Jesus, but the imaginal Jesus, or the imaginal Christ. So the Jesus that matters, not so much the Jesus of matter, the historical flesh and blood Jesus, but the imaginal Jesus, the imaginal Christ. And, and I think, perhaps something in me realized that, but, but, but not quite fully conscious enough, so um, I just dwelt in this in-between world, and it was lovely and, and beautiful. But, Again, to say we are interested, I'm interested in the imaginal divine. That's what we're talking about, the imaginal divine. One last, uh, one last thing on, on this point, then, then we'll stop. Um, give you an example again. This has, this has to do also with, with, with vagueness. Um, I was sitting in meditation a little, little while ago and tuning into the felt center, the whole energy body, as we've been emphasizing on this retreat. And there's um, a, a, a little bit of samadhi around. And then suddenly I heard, uh, quietly in the, in the inner ear, so to speak, I heard the word tzedakah. Uh, tzedakah is a word I knew from my... Um, Childhood uh, is a Hebrew word for charity. I think it means charity, or perhaps it can mean giving. Perhaps it's uh, equivalent to the word dana. I, I don't know. Um, but I, I heard that that word sidaka, just that word arising, and um, and uh, and then with that word, or sort of um, sparked by that word, was the subtle image. Uh, sense and idea, all wrapped into one image, sense, idea of my being, and, and then the sense of my being was completely um, uh, wrapped up with, with the sense of the energy body at that time, but the, the subtle image, sense, idea of my being as a gift from God. Uh, and sense, so that word, and, and then my uh, immediate <coughs> knowing of, of, of what the translation of it, and it just sparked a certain... Um, a certain image sense, a certain conception in the being, very, very beautiful, totally wrapped up with the energy body. My being as a gift from God. My being is a gift uh, from God. And then correspondingly um, uh, came a sense of giving my being to God as a reciprocal gift. So there's uh, receiving the gift of being and giving my being to God as a reciprocal gift. Very, very beautiful and very subtle. I, I lost it several times then found it again. And actually later, um, in, in a meditation the same day, I was on retreat at the, at the time, um, the, the, this, this sense arose again but uh, attached itself to a person. So there's again the sense of the image spreading, but interestingly spreading from a more general sense to, uh, of uh, divinity um, to divinity through a, a, a person. Uh, usually it's the other way around, but, uh, but 
the, we see, as I said, um, a person uh, in a certain imaginal, theophanic way, and that begins to spread to the surroundings, in the cosmic oasis. But just to say just a few little things about that um, that uh, subtle uh, imaginal sense or opening there. Um, uh, just, to, just to, I'm mentioning it just because I want to draw out just a few things. Some of them I've mentioned before when we were giving the instructions, and just to point out that an image doesn't, um, well, that image uh, doesn't seem to, it didn't seem to involve any inner physical sense. Um, rather, it was just a sense in the other meaning of the word, uh, as an intuitive way of knowing. It's just a sense of the being as a gift from God and of giving one's uh, being um, through God, to God. Um, so it's not really a, a kinesthetic sense. It involves that. It involves the energy body. It certainly wasn't a particularly visual sense, although it also involved an awareness of, of nature and, and that was around me. And nor is it really aud- was it auditory. It's not an inner auditory sense. The word sadaka that I heard uh, was more a trigger, something that ignited. Um, uh, so spontaneously hearing that word inwardly um, functioned as what we call this this po- poetic sort of spark. Um, now, again, we've touched on this before, but just to spell it out in terms of instructions as well, when uh, a spontaneous word arises in the mind, if I'm doing usual sort of mindfulness meditation, I would just uh, recognize it, note it perhaps, and then let go of it and come back to the breath or come back to whatever else. But here, in this practice, <clears throat> this kind of imaginal practice, um, or practicing of uh, opening to the at least the orientation, the potential of cosmopoesis, um, some things that enter the mind can be taken up um, and um, and and function as as keys that uh, we can open that open uh, the being and the perception and the conception in certain ways. And, and that uh, we can then tune to the mystical perception, the, the image, the mythos, the cosmopoesis that's coming from that. So it wasn't, uh, as I said, particularly uh, in any physical sense, nor was it um, particularly um, only in the affective, only a heart thing. The heart was involved. There was a, a beautiful, subtle um, em, uh, emotionality involved uh, in, in the heart. But that wasn't the primary thing either. And, uh, more important for our purposes for, for this, uh, uh, what the points we want to make right now, is that the sense of God in, in that, as that opened, the sense of the divine was not located um, spatially, and nor was it uh, specifically defined. Again, so really emphasizing this this um, vagueness. Again, what is this God or divinity that I was um, f- f- was so much s- central and part of this image sense idea? Um, it was vague. There was not a worked out, uh, clear, demarcated. Um, philosophy or conception of God or divinity. Rather, it was open, amorphous, ambiguous. 
Or um, when I, uh, or in practice, when I might use the word, sense another as an angelic presence, or see them as angel, they appear to me as theophany, as angel. What does that mean? What does this word angel mean? Or day? What, what exactly do I mean? What is an angel? Now we've been through all this elaborate uh, conceptual structure, but still, I don't know. And, and I, I can be affected beautifully and open in the perception and the conceiving too, open by all that, but it's still an undefined um, meaning. Not less powerful for that, um, for that being undefined or not clearly defined. So per- perhaps characteristic of our, I don't know, may- maybe it's different personalities, maybe it's our time in history, maybe it's... I don't know, but we can tend to elevate um, uh, uh, specific, clear, or apparently clear, demarcated knowing of um, uh, something that's defined, or at least a definable knowable. We we tend to think, this is better if it's... um, uh, clear, demarcated, and definable, knowable, or defined, preferably, or at least possibly definable, knowable. We tend to elevate that. That's good, that's what we like, that's what we feel comfortable with, usually. But is there is there a necessary place for kinds of knowing that uh, need to remain open and not very defined? So in other words, sometimes we have experiences and um, wrapped up in those experiences are conceivings uh, and that the knowing there is not um, is much more said open and um, amorphous and less defined and not clear and not demarcated and so also, just in terms of that example, um, again, the in the practice of it, the attention was not really focused on a particular object or a particular sense. It was more global or, or, or rather general. The sense of divinity was everywhere. Um, different than vast awareness that seems divine in this universal way. So it, this image sense very much involved my personhood. The sense of God and the divine there was um, not very particular, but it definitely involved my personhood, my life, my being. Um, not just universal, it involved me. There was a sense of self there and God. The God was more uh, vague, but nonetheless powerful for that. And again, and if this isn't clear, um, we can tend so much from Buddhist circles to elevate experiences that um, are more um, dissolutions of self, uh, or seeing the emptiness of self, etc., um, or non-self, you know, experiences of no self and all that. But there's knowing the emptiness of self that thoroughly we can then open the door for a whole other range and realm um, of dimensions of experience that do involve self, which is not taken literally and hardened into reality. So this whole uh, range of experiences that involve personhood and particularity, so important. And 
um, now repeating what I said before, but um, despite it being uh, not, not focused on a particular object or a particular sense, being global or general, the tuning um, in the meditation was very precise, very specific, um, even if it wasn't quite definable, uh, was, as we talked about before, was tuning to a particular wavelength or sensibility. So, we, we talked about this in the instructions, but the image here is more um, a kind of mystical perception. It's an intuition, it's a sense. It's, it's more vague also in terms of objects, but the precision in, in, in the meditative tuning and steadiness of, of the attention is on, if you like, this, this certain wavelength or this certain... Um, sense of things, um, sensibility. So hopefully it might be <coughs> helpful um, to perhaps give a few more examples of uh, theophany and particularly of cosmopoesis in, in imaginal practice to illustrate <coughs> what I'm uh, trying to get at and when I'm trying to open uh, a field or a door, a window, a portal that we can move through, uh, a door really, that we can move through and a, a territory that can open up. So hopefully to illustrate and fill out a bit of what, what we've been talking about with a few more examples. Actually, when it comes to theophany and, and particularly when it comes to cosmopolis, one of the most potent and rich and fertile um, uh, class of examples, if, if you like, um, of imaginal uh, practice involves the erotic and eros and uh, particularly pertaining to um, loving another and, and sexual feeling and eros in, 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 in the biggest sense of the word towards another whether that's a purely imaginal figure or, or someone we know seen uh, through the lens of, of mythos, of, of image. Um, and there's something, uh, partly to do with what I talked about before, but something about the eros that potentizes and opens things up um, in, in the imaginal in a way that spills over. So I could actually give many, many examples um, where the erotic dimension, the erotic aspect, is actually foremost in in the uh, in relation to an imaginal figure or a figure seen through the imaginal lens, so to speak. Um, but actually, I'm not going to because because it's it's such a huge subject in itself, um, and and hopefully we'll we'll be able to do that another time, another retreat, or another place. Um, so give some different examples. There's eros in all of these, but not in, in the less sort of um, sexual, romantic uh, way that we tend to, to think of when we hear that word erotic. But eros pervades all of these anyway, as it does any deep work with the imaginal. It's part of the territory. It's what fertilizes it, as we talked about earlier. Um, so many of these examples involve music, and I've, I've talked about music and musicians and given, given examples. So there's, there's a um, connection between some of them. Um, so rather than the erotic, the, 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 there's a commonality of music here. It's not that significant. I just am um, 
picking these out to give some examples of, of cosmopoesis. Uh, some time ago, um, just was dusk time, the evening coming, and um, at Guy House, and, and the bird song of, of the evening dusk, the birds singing as the evening draws in. And hearing that music as uh, a cosmic music, um, uh, the, the, the bird song echoes, expresses a kind of cosmic music, um, suggestive of other cosmic levels. Again, there's that vertical dimension implicit in the hearing, in the imaginal uh, hearing, in, in, the, in the very sense, um, somehow. Again, quite vague, um, but this sense of with, with all that as music, as cosmologically interwoven. And then that had a personal component for myself and remembering my um, life as a composer um, for some years, uh, something I really gave myself to very fully, and feeling um, the, the sort of... Uh, the, the function of the composer, the sole function of the composer as kind of serving that connection between the more cosmic music and um, and uh, uh, what comes through on, on a human level, or rather seeing that there is a connection and wanting to serve that and seeing that they ideally reflect each other. So a lot of that is actually quite... Uh, was quite subtle and, and hard to put into words. And I gave that other image much earlier in the tree of the music that matters. It's the music that matters, but music in that sense was something more broad. Here it was um, still more broad than actual what we think of as music, but um, not as broad as it was in that other example. And um, quite similar examples, actually. This is something... Um, for myself, I get quite a lot this particular sense of um, listening and um, uh, sound uh, and hearing it as sacred uh, music. Um, but I was uh, sitting r- reading in the um, in the vegetable garden at Guy House. It was a beautiful sunny spring day, and I was sitting on the bench there, um, studying studying reading, and um, I actually heard music. Um, uh, meaning I physically heard music and at a certain point I realized that it was the water pipe at the whole other end, perhaps 100 yards away, or I don't know how long that garden is, 50, 100 yards. Um, At the other end, it was the tap, uh, sort of old, uh, probably, uh, you know, um, fairly on its way out tap of water that was running because it was uh, into a hose watering the garden somewhere. Um, so this music that I heard was actually the sound of the water through the, the tap and the pipe at the other end of the garden. But it really um, sounded so beautiful, um, like some very um, complex and, and skillful and, and exotic kind of uh, jazz through, some, through a, rude, a reed or flute instrument. Um, like, like improvised, it reminded me of a musician I love, Dewey Redman. He, he, died some time ago, um, and he used to play an instrument called a musette, a fairly um, rare instrument, but it sounds like an, some kind of Asian reed instrument, and he was a, a master, um, b- b- playing very, very free and creative and sort of um, uh, subtle and complex ways there. 
Um, so the, 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 the sound that I was hearing from this tap was really compelling as music. It sounded so creative and fantastic. Its sound, its structure, the, 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 the kind of melodic fragments, and etc. Um, and uh, there were other sounds that seemed to accompany it. This went on for some minutes, and, and listening to that, and opening to that, and the delight in that, and the beauty of it, sort of, um, through an actual sound, uh, the, 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 the sound of the, of the tap, uh, through that then listening and opening in this way, the whole garden, the whole veggie garden became sacred, became uh, as if it had, uh, it became a theophany, the garden itself, the sight of it, the, the, whole, the whole surrounding of it became a theophany. Um, there was as if it uh, was seeing it at, at a kind of more subtle level, seeing a more subtle dimension of the existence of, of the garden, of the being of the garden. And, of course, it was filled with light anyway, because it was a sunny day. But this sense of other levels um, of creation, a sense of a kind of uh, other worlds, other dimensions of, of this world present there, the, um, the sense, too, of... Uh, this world, if we echo uh, something Corbin said, uh, this world as the imagination of God. That was all kind of implicit in this, um, in, in this hearing, and, and then the, the whole senses opening to this other, other garden, so to speak, in or behind or with or at a different level of the garden. So there was not so much a transfiguring of, of the physical um, perception of the gardening as, as we could say a transubstantiation it appeared to be of a different substance at a different level um, really very beautiful uh, there, that, that kind of cosmopoesis or opening uh, perception of a different dimension um, so it was uh, heavenly for sure, or uh, divine, but um, again, it should be obvious by now. Not when, if I use words like that, or if we hear words like that in this context, because um, it felt like, oh, this is heaven right here. This garden uh, feels like it's perceived as as kind of heaven, but uh, not talking in a met- metaphorical term. Oh, it's heavenly. Oh, it's simply divine. Um, it's really a different sense of. Um, this more, this vertical dimension interfused with, with the physical or perceivable in and through the physical. Uh, again, quite a similar uh, I- I- example, not so much... Um, well, actually, it's, it's, it's again, it's quite similar, standing... Um, doing standing meditation outside near the big trees in the front garden and the morning sun was coming up um, and again for me it was triggered by the, the bird song but really the whole scene I'm aware of the whole scene despite the fact that my eyes were mostly shut there was an awareness of the nature around me and obviously I know the scene and know what it looked like um, but it seemed to me uh, very strongly, as as if that whole world, that whole scene, and and the birds and their song, this was angelic, an angelic word, world. It's hard to describe these kind of things, um, but something that the whole thing, the nature there and the bird song was was felt 
uh, was perceived as luminous, as, as diaphanous to something coming through, uh, transparent, translucent to the divine uh, light coming through the divinities. Uh, the sacredness was, was pervading everything. And there was a sense of um, everything praising uh, so I was certainly praising all that and the different dimensions there, but the, 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 the world itself and the birds and the light and the trees, they were angels praising the divine. They were divine, faces of the divine, and they were praising. Um, give some more examples. Um, let's see. Um, Yes, and I think I've touched on this one before. I think I mentioned this one before. Uh, I, I, excuse me, I forget all the examples I've mentioned. But actually, I want to say it again, partly for instruction's sake, to um, get, give an indication of how these things might actually evolve. Because um, you know, someone might be listening and say, "Suddenly, this thing happened," which is sometimes how it is. Um, and we talked about how we can set things up and how we can really um, uh, kind of relate to the flow of what arises in meditation with a different kind of responsiveness than we might in, say, other kinds of practice. So I, I want to go through briefly this, this example to highlight um, the kind of ways that um, the imaginal experience, or in this case the cosmopoesis, um, unfolds um, uh, supported by or, or, or dependent on, helped by the, the ways of responding and allowing um, what came up, the ways of seeing what, what uh, arose spontaneously in meditation. Um, so I had been um, uh, re reading a book on Jewish mysticism, in fact, earlier, I think, uh, in the day or the day before or something, and that had triggered what I can only describe as a sort of Jewish feeling, um, which is not something I have a lot, but it's there in my psyche. I was, I was raised uh, Orthodox Jewish and then put, put all that well behind me in different ways as an atheist and then um, getting into Buddhism and things. But it's there in my, in my psyche um, and uh, the whole history and ethos and certain, it's alive uh, as soul world, a soul image, and all that. So a Jewish feeling, and, and conscious that it was, well, the point I want to make right now is that it, I was conscious that it was triggered um, by just picking up um, uh, a book on Jewish mysticism and, re and reading a little bit. So that's fine. You know, you say, oh, I dismissed that. It can't be my soul because it was triggered by something I heard or something someone said or something I read. No problem. So this Jewish feeling was there, and it's part of... Uh, part of what I was just aware of and allowing and holding and feeling in the meditation. And as I was doing that, a point of white light um, appeared at my solar plexus, a sort of um, like, a, like a star in, in the night sky, appeared at my solar plexus. And just aware again of the whole energy body and focusing a little bit on that white light, some samadhi came. And then that spread um, through the body, that energy of the samadhi, and it felt like um, my sense of the body and the energy body as a vessel waiting to be filled. And this Jewish feeling was still pervading and a particular um, mythos that's alive within the, the sort of um, umbrella or the soul world of what 
Jewishness might mean to me from from my past and from what I've read and in my in my soul fantasies and um, uh, the the idea of a tzaddik tzaddik is basically a, a translates as a, a righteous uh, person so someone like like um, like a bodhisattva something like that the Jewish version of a bodhisattva um, wise and incredibly compassionate and pure and saintly and given to God so the resonances of that whole soul image what that word means for me and all the um, images that accrue to that and the fantasies and the myths are all quite vague um, but very potent very fertile in, in my psyche um, and then so, so with, with all that allowing all that feeling all that aware of it as image as mythos operating in the psyche at that time connected with the energy body of some degree of samadhi and then again the bird song outside my window um, became to me beautiful but, but beautiful like a sacred text it was as if I heard the bird song as a sacred text um, and a, a text that was inexhaustible, inexhaustibly deep, um, inexhaustible in depth and beauty. Now that very idea of um, a sacred text and the inexhaustibility of the text um, in terms of the depth of meanings that are possible, the infinite interpretations of it, that's also a Jewish idea. Or rather, it's an idea I picked up in part through my studies of Kabbalah, um, or reading about the Kabbalah, I should say. And um, uh, um, so, so that whole image sense and the cosmopoesis involved of, of the bird song as sacred text and I, I did give uh, this example, a related example before um, it's not completely translatable this text, it's not even in a specific language, the details are not important in that sense but there's again the precision of the tuning to the reverberations, the echoing, the feeling, the mythos there um, that, that's important. But that uh, image of fantasy, that cosmopoetic sense of the birdsong as a beautiful, sacred text, inexhaustible, came, if you like, on the back of um, all those other um, micro-stages of the meditation and relating to them in a certain way. Had I shut down or dismissed or um, judged as unworthy or just a distraction or papancha some of those earlier um, stages, the Jewish feeling or the tzaddik thing or whatever, body as vessel, um, maybe that that uh, sense of, of the sacred text, of the bird song as sacred text, would not have arisen. It did not have the... Um, a way was not... an opening was not made made for it. So again, in that, in that sense... Um, the image sense of, of the bird song is is, uh, um, is not visual and and but it's it's subtle and rich and pervasive. It's, it was auditory, but on opening my eyes, um, then the world around me. And again, there's this this is the spreading that we we're talking about. The world around me. Here's here's an image. Here's a theophanic image, and I'm focusing on that. And it has a certain boundary to it. Um, in this case, the bird song, um, but but opening my eyes often in the world around me and my body too, seems to be sacred text. Also, seem to be sacred text. So there's the spreading um, of the theophany to a more a cosmo cosmo uh, poetic sense of everything. The whole world and my body too seem to be sacred text.
maybe a couple more examples. Um, some time ago, over, over a year ago, I uh, had a day off and I spent it studying mostly in my room. I was reading different things. Again, I might have mentioned this one before, but... Um, uh, and then I meditated, and um, I was exploring imaginal practice deliberately, but no images arose. Uh, this is quite a while ago. I was uh, looking for, like, a um, an image as something other than um, the world or my life, something that appeared kind of uh, to me in meditation like that. No images arose. But then actually... Um, the, the, the image or memory, if you like, of the day spent studying. So me sitting at the desk, um, studying, if you like, the sense of, um, in that, of, of pursuing what is meaningful to me, of trying to absorb, to learn, to open horizons and paradigms, to make connections. I mentioned this before. Um, that was the image. That memory, that seeing of myself um, as uh, as that memory was the image infused with certain mythos and, and fantasy but um, the image or symbol if you like was was me studying with everything all the richness imbued in that uh, but that too um, had this sense of um, echoing higher levels again this vertical dimension and um, this this um, the image of me studying felt like a theophany felt like it was expressing a face of the divine in and through in this case the particularities of me but also the particularities of of um, a certain activity in life were, were expressing other levels, and the the, the um, sense of theophany was was through and in something very particular. Certain activities of life and and the self. Now I wonder. I don't know if I've mentioned this uh, but earlier in the retreat, but sometimes um, when we sense uh, life, I wonder sometimes if we sense life more imaginally in that way. We have that sense of. Um, life as image, if you like. We have the sense of theophany and cosmopoesis in life. Then it may be that sort of strange images don't need to arise um, so much. So that's a conjecture, a thought, something I wonder about sometimes. Um, It might be for some people that the literalization of life really believing this or that so much, um, and the, the cling that actually forces images, strange images, on, on them in, in, in dreams and, um, and other places, uh, you know, and in meditation or whatever, or just uh, wherever, because there's an over-literalization. When life is seen more imaginally, then the imaginal comes through and it's not squeezed out of life, there's a broader range for it to come through. But again, in that image, um, there was a spreading uh, in terms of the breadth of the image because the surroundings started to be included um, in in the image. In that case, my room that I was sitting in, um, the whole world of that started 
to be not just me, not just the activity, but the whole surrounding started to be filled with this sense of theophany, the, the um, sense of um, sacredness and of different levels present, um, if you like, in the, in the world, in and through the world, the different dimensions of, of the world. So, <clears throat> I'll, I'll leave out any other example I was going to give and, and just finish with one. It's actually, um, in a way, uh, in a way, it's the most complex and perhaps for some, maybe maybe the strangest, it may be quite hard to relate to. Um, again, it's musical or has to do with music. Um, so I'm aware it, it might sound quite strange for or so, some, uh, especially people who don't have a, a musical background. But I'm choosing it partly, again, to illustrate something about meditative process, about picking up on cues, relating to them in certain ways, working with difficulties, and and how that opens opens um, theophanic sense, but also, the co- the, in this case, the cosmopoetic sense up in particular ways. Also, again, to illustrate um, when we use words like divine and God, etc., that um, it's really uh, quite broad, infinite, in fact, the range of what might be meant there. Uh, it's not the narrow preconception that we might um, immediately assume when, we'll, when, we, when we hear those words. God or divine. So, I uh, I had a teacher. Uh, only f- I didn't have that much contact with him years ago at the conservatory. He was a, a, a jazz saxophone player, really, really amazing. Uh, one, one, I loved his his playing, and I didn't have that much contact with him. I had him for one or two classes, I think, over the years, and. Um, on, on a whim, I, I, I googled him, and um, and actually found, among lots of other stuff, a short article explaining um, the uh, explaining a sort of um, m- the basics of a certain musical concept way of improvising. It's quite quite technical um, to to explain, but. Um, so it's quite a complex thing, uh, because I study music, I, I could understand it. It was quite complex um, to do with kind of advanced jazz improvisation. And so I read this article, and, and reading the article actually prompted my mind um, then to, in, in, in moments where it wasn't busy, and even sometimes in, in meditation, um, to improvise lines along, um, you know, informed by what I'd read in this article, and this, this sort of... Um, uh, harmonic melodic concept that he was uh, describing that was described in the article. Um, so my mind, is, if you like, was was doodling or daydreaming spontaneously um, um, music uh, on the guitar, which was my instrument, um, in in the imagination, and and quite a lot. It was just coming, <laughs> coming, coming. And it says it was. Um, uh, I could have stopped it, I suppose, but but it was really quite a lot, and I was I was interested. I was it's the something, um, something pushing that, if if you like, um, uh, and then 
I think it was that night or, or the night after, I can't remember, I, I dreamt of a jazz guitarist. And um, th this jazz guitarist was uh, dressed in a sort of colorful jester's shirt, you know, these sort of big square patches of, of bright colors, um, and it, kind of smart but interesting, arty looking and, and sort of very striking without being kind of overly flamboyant. And he was playing uh, a guitar solo on, on a stage and, and playing the most amazing, creative, um, original um, music. Very, very strong, very um, striking, as I said, with, with this powerful, um, clear sound. And uh, there was things about that that I noticed and... and um, uh, musically and stuff, not not that important about the guitar and other other stuff. Um, I don't see an audience and 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 anyone else in the band, but he's definitely on a stage performing, is is my sense. In, in the morning, um, I felt something emotionally which visits me uh, from time to time over the years since I gave up being a musician, um, and. It comes occasionally, and um, it's actually a feeling of grief, of loss, of um, missing uh, missing being a musician, and sometimes it's very specific, missing being a jazz musician, missing the trajectory of a jazz life. Um, and so sometimes it comes just a whisper of it, and other times it comes and it, it's... It, it's something that I get pulled into um, a little bit, and it's difficult not to take it concretely and literally sometimes. And so it came uh, that morning, and I, I feel like, hmm, I don't quite know, it was quite strong, you see, it's subtle, but, but quite, what, what's the word, um, it wouldn't go away. Um, it was uh, sticking a little bit. Um, I didn't quite know how to handle it or approach it in practice. So, well, you know, the question as always, what's needed? What will be helpful here? Um, so looking at it, exploring, investigating this, this constellation of an emotion, I realized it's not all jazz I miss. It's, it's something to do with those two images, the image um, uh, tr triggered by what I'd found from my teacher and, and those kind of doodle, daydream um, improvisations in my mind, um, in, in my imagination, that image and the image of the dream. So there's something about the kind of loose, complex sophistication of the saxophonist style and also to do with his sound and way of articulating and certain, um, certain harmonic things um, that, that actually have a lot to do with being on the edges, being uh, on the bat, playing in and out of the boundaries of, in, in this case, to tonality, and, and being at the, on the edge, being liminal. And so that, that was recognized, or that's characteristic of it, all of that. And then the other dream image was more a sense, um, what was captivating, capturing for me there was more the sense of this almost otherworldly brilliance of. Um, Intuitive, or could even channeled music when it's uh, improvised music when it's just, just, it almost like just feels like it's from another world, um, as opposed to the sort of more uh, loosely intellectual mathematical component of um, the saxophonist approach. Although that's very very fluid and um, edgy. 
So really there were two images there, and they were, they were drawing me, they were so attractive um, in my soul. Um, and then looking further, looking, exploring further, I realized that a lot of the pull, um, or a lot of what was keeping this sadness, this grief, this sense of loss around, was, had to do with freedom of expression. And this is interesting, because I, I, I uh, so I'm, I'm sharing quite personally now, um, in teaching Dharma, or giving Dharma talks, or writing about Dharma, um, I feel I, I have a responsibility to be as clear as I can. I aim uh, mostly for clarity, because I'm, I'm trying to instruct, or teach, or, or make things clear, for the most part. Um, so that aiming at clarity, aiming the didactic aim, the teaching, it's like, it's, um, I am responsible to you, in this case, as a listener, and to the st- and I'm responsible to the students. I'm responsible to the Dharma and all of that. And so that puts quite a lot of constraints on my freedom of expression. And uh, also exploring, realizing um, also that there are constraints. There's quite a lot of constraints um, that um, uh, I feel um, because of the whole Dharma ethos, so to speak. Um, so there's a limit to how wild uh, my expression can be. There's a limit to how much wildness can um, manifest or express when I'm giving a Dharma talk. It's actually pretty, <laughs> it's very limited. Um, uh, and, and what can happen in, a, in, in, in the Dharma hall at Guy House or another re- re- retreat center or whatever. The whole ethos is... Um, is quite constrained in terms of freedom of expression, and particularly in terms of, let's say, wildness and intensity. So um, sometimes, I mean, I think anyone who, who, who listens enough will recognize there's quite a lot of intensity in, um, uh, in, in some Dharma talks and some um, writings, etc. But it's still, um, I feel, constrained or held back or modulated for the sake of the listener and for the sake of respecting a certain... Um, restricted uh, range of, of the ethos here and in the Dharma world. So if you like, the, the permission of the stage um, as a Dharma teacher, when I sit at the front and give a talk or whatever it is, the permission of the stage is very different in, in what it allows and supports than the permission um, of, 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 of a jazz musician on stage. Especially some some the jazz I was into was really really very high intensity, um, wild sort of what they call out there and um, experimental etc. Um, so the permission of the stage is quite different. Um, has to do with freedom of expression. Has to do with intensity, with libido, with 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 all these things. So I was exploring and realizing what's involved in in um, in, in 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 why this this feelings of grief of loss were there and in, interested in in what was involved in it um, and the, the mind you know it's subtle but it's not not a huge uh, terrible emotion but there was a, a degree at which the mind was a little bit churning with this and throwing forward lots of jazz images and, and feeling this subtle pain of that. And the question, how to deliteralize this? I'm taking these images too literally. Um, 
So again, exploring and, and looking at the whole emotional constellation there and, and the constellation with the images. And I realize at times coming in and out of all this, I feel a real gratitude for these images um, existing and also for the actual musicians I love. I've talked about this before and, and the music. Um, deep, deep, deep uh, gra- gratitude there um, in, in my soul, in my heart. Um, and this turned out to be key because then it turned into a, a kind of reverence, a devotion, um, a prayerfulness. Um, and, and that felt 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 lovely, felt beautiful, still still a, a, a shade of, of, of pain, of grief in it. And then I started reflecting, so with all that, letting that open, then I started reflecting, um, actually, th- this is image. So uh, jazz musicians that I knew personally, well, they were people, and people... Uh, <laughs> people are not simple, and they're disappointing, and... Um, they, they're actually, um, the image that I have, say, of the teacher or, uh, um, or the dream guitarist who sort of reminded me of someone else, they don't actually exist in that way. In other words, the actual teacher um, is, is much more than, more complex, more uh, aspects of his being that are you know, not too keen on, etc. So, oh, image, image. Um, not, don't get it too confused. Um, somehow th- that the reflections and the gratitude liberated just enough space around the images um, uh, without rendering them less powerful. So all this is quite subtle. It's not that I'm, I'm in a great contraction or sobbing or, or anything like that. So we're talking about quite subtle things here and working quite subtly with them in different ways. And that's really what I want to illustrate in this, in this long example. So there was more space around the, these images, but without rendering them less powerful. And, and then, actually, um, this is uh, one, one of the really interesting pieces, um, is that then they were able to be kind of absorbed. Those images, the, those two images of, of jazz and jazz mu- musicians and jazz music and jazz life, etc., were somehow able to be absorbed because they were less constricted around, there was more space around, them. they were able to be absorbed into the, um, the texture um, of my life, the, the image of my life as it is now, the actuality of my life now here as a Dharma teacher, etc., and doing what I do and all the different stuff that I do, which mostly is not music anymore. So somehow it's like the, the, the ethos, the image of that, of, of jazz, of um, it's actually hard to put that um, in a nutshell, what that actually means. I've talked about this before, it means more than improvising. Um, uh, just how you improvise Dharma talks, or you improvise in interviews, and all. it means much more than that. Um, but the, the whole mythos of that was actually able to be translated and not, again, not in, in totally delineated ways. There's still a lot of vagueness there. But absorbed into the texture, the image, and the actuality of my life. The, persp- the, the way of feeling and sensing, seeing my life. So that was interesting. But in terms of cosmopoiesis the, the th- of, of that, um, uh, this, this is the piece I wanted to emphasize. So I found all this interesting. So I go outside and I do some walking meditation. 
And I'm interested in this whole question of cosmopoiesis. And so I'm pleased uh, to, to notice, uh, when I do the walking meditation, that subtly these images, these jazz music images and jazz musician images that I describe, they do spill over and spread into a cosmopoiesis, into a sense of, of the world around me and the nature and, and the walking and everything. And it's absolutely beautiful. It's absolutely delightful. And, and joy comes with it. Again, hard to describe, but it's like the world is music somehow. And that was the sense of it, that the, uh, at another level, if you like, at another level of the vertical spectrum of the imaginal, the world is music, its nature is music, its essence is music. Um, so uh, I know that um, we can hear that in different ways, and people talk about um, People talk about it in different ways. Um, so certainly I can hear certain sounds as, as actual music, you know. Um, uh, but but it's, it's, more, it's more than that. Actually, all the senses were involved. So that what I see and the, f- the forms that I see, the shapes, the colors, the sensations in my feet of, as I walk, the whole... The whole of nature and the whole structure of nature was was music. Very hard to explain here, um, and and also hard to form a clear, defined sense of. It's quite subtle, yet very wonderful and very powerful. So again, there's the the vagueness and the non um, uh, non delineated and clear conceptual structure, yet still the, the depth and the potency of the opening. Like really another dimension to existence. And, and when I was tuning into that, but then the mind loses it, the perception loses it, that happened many times. But uh, what I found was just remembering those two images of the jazz um, saxophone, saxophonist, and, and that whole um, harmonic melodic approach that he described, just the image, very lightly, the image of that. Um, and the image of the dream guitarist playing, and just remembering them, letting them be there very lightly for a second or two, um, uh, and they and then they, they started again to act as uh, triggers to infuse the perceptions of the world somehow. And those images, then those two images might might linger there, or one of them might linger very subtly um, in the background where the foreground attention is on the cosmopoetic sense, the world as music. Um, or, or those uh, initial images um, could, could disappear, either way. But either way, um, I, I stay tuned, I can stay tuned into the sense of nature as music and, and hold that tune into that, hold that steady in the attention and um, open to that. Uh, th- there are other parts of this. I'll just mention briefly that. that um, uh, so this is all o- over a period of a, um, uh, a day in, in and out, and where I had quite a lot of fr- free time to be practicing and pondering these things and working with them. Um, l- later, again in the afternoon, um, again the um, the mind drifting repeatedly into this sort of imaginal um, doodling along along the lines of um, this harmonic melodic approach on on the imagined guitar in my in my imagination. Um, and I sense then another image within all this, and this one is much more personal. Um, a, a being uh, of white, of blue light, uh, puer. Puer is, means boy, I think, in Latin, and, and it, it has a whole baggage associated with it in Jungian psychology, but um, it's a young, 
eternally young, or, uh, as, as a young boy, not, uh, or the young man, let, let's put it that way. Um, uh, so, uh, say, uh, teen- teenager kind of thing. But um, what pu'a really means in archetypal terms is a whole um, confluence of things, but to do with um, enthusiasm and spirituality and vitality and eros and m- many things there. Um, but this pu'er of blue light um, uh, appears as an image um, and it's sort of mixed with me or it is me uh, at say 17 um, uh, discovering uh, those kind of harmonic melodic possibilities um, uh, and uh, which wasn't the case at, at that age, but um, um, and uh, exploring them, knowing how to develop them and practice them, and the excitement of that, the um, the endless sort of pure enthusiasm. You know, enthusiasm. The word comes from entheos, to to um, theos meaning. God, divine, um, and the entering of the divine into the being. And so, uh, again, what's characteristic of Pura is this kind of enthusiasm um, and the eagerness and the sense of, uh, in this image, partly of a being of blue light, partly it was me, partly me at 17, all kind of fused together, and the enthusiasm of discovery and creativity and exploring um, in this sort of jazz world and developing things, and the sense of the infinity and the open-endedness of possibilities, all that as a kind of gestalt, a constellation was there as as image um, in in relation to to the, the same, or rather triggered by the same daydreaming and, and, and the initial um, images. And with that, actually, um, not a getting lost in all that, and our, um, but actually a lot of bliss, uh, much happiness in, in the energy body, sukkha, filling the energy body, and the sense of this light and blue light. One option at that point certainly would have been um, to veer into, steer into um, some samadhi, focusing in on the happiness in the energy body and letting that fill and absorbing into that. Certainly that would have been possible at that point. Um, but there's the uh, the whole imaginal constellation there going from a cosmopoetic sense at one point into something more personal again, but liberated from the kind of contraction of a, a, a tight um, tight relationship with with my personal history and the actuality of my life and this happened and well, and all that there's a more imaginal sense of one's life, that even transcended time, because I'm certainly not 17 anymore. Um, and that didn't happen when I was 17, when I was that age. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't into jazz at that age. Uh, but there it is, m- moving from the cosmopoetic to the, um, the imaginal personal, if you like, and, but in a liberated and liberating way. Uh, and then... Again, even later in the day, um, this sense of praise arose for the endless sort of fountain, the the, the cornucopia of music from the psyche. Uh, Just uh, not just my psyche, but 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 uh, the psyche, you know, the the soul, um, 
gives rise to music, humanity giving rise to music, endless in its possibilities, like a fountain out of the deep soul, the deep mind. Uh, and uh, so the sense of praise for that, the hum- human aspect, if you like, and also the praise for the, this other dimension, this other level, the music that is the cosmos, the cosmos that is music. Uh, and all the time knowing that that sense of the world cosmos is, is, and that perception is not separate from the mind. All the time knowing that. So, just to finish, um, the you know, talking about cosmopoesis now, the, the, the impulse towards uh, cosmopoesis, the idea of cosmopoesis, um, you know, we recognize, or, or in a way I'm sort of stating as an axiom, that the soul wants uh, poetry and enchantment, that these are um, essential to soul-making and soulfulness, to say in different words what we said much earlier in the retreat. Um, we or the soul wants to live, to know, to see, to experience poetically. And the enchantment of poetic existence, poetry to existence. And so in terms of cosmopoesis, because really what we're talking about in cosmopoesis is again this sense of range. Um, the cos- we're not saying the cosmos is like this, so we could take cosmology as defined by modern science uh, current modern science, whatever, so that's how the cosmos is, and that's um, fine, and actually, to, to me, very enchanting, very beautiful, as one vision, one knowing, one sensing of the cosmos. I, I love um, the, uh, I love what modern physics and modern cosmology um, uncovers as, as much as I can understand it. Um, uh, but but something in the soul, to say in different words what we said before, wants and needs um, uh, an endlessness of creativity, a range um, of, of ways of feeling, sensing, knowing, seeing, uh, living, and sensing the, the, ourselves, others, and the world, the cosmopoiesis. There's something about it, just that, that the psyche wants to expand, the imaginal world wants to expand, the eros wants to expand. As we said, this, this movement of fertilizing, expanding of um, tendency of, of eros, psyche, and logos together, fertilizing each other, the whole thing growing, expanding, going deeper, opening up other levels, other visions, other experiences. So it's not that I w- uh, one would, uh, holding all this lightly, it's not then that one want, would want to assert this, this cosmos um, is real and that one is not, or that one is real and this one is not. That would be falling into, um, uh, clinging too tightly and concretely and literally to either um, you know, one view or another, or scientific reductionist materialism versus some other new agey view or whatever. So this idea, the cosmos is music, is is a poetic idea, is a poetic sense of of um, of the cosmos. This is not, as, as I said, it's not even a metaphor in the way that we commonly use um, that that word metaphor, and it's certainly not a literalism. But um, 
again, because we, because the soul, because Eros and Psyche want to see, to feel, to know, to live poetically. This um, expanding, um, this movement of cosmopoesis, this opening up of the range of the perception of self, other, and particularly of world, um, it's necessary to the soul because Eros wants to expand Psyche and soulfulness, and the Psyche wants to be expanded, soulfulness wants to deepen and be enriched and nourished. Soul-making needs to happen. It's important for our soul that soul-making happens. So, soul needs images in all kinds of ways. Um, many, and, and, and a whole range, as we said, infinity images of, of, um, of life, of self, of others. Um, uh, so, needs images um, that pertain to life. And it may well need images uh, that seem to have nothing to do with life, what James Hillman calls the underworld. They're away from life. They seem to have no bearing, and yet they're important for the soul. So there's the images that we have of life, and the many, and plural, uh, the range of, of, of the images of life, and there's images away from life. Um, but soul also needs this sense of um, other dimensions, this, this vertical spectrum of the imaginal. This is how... Uh, this is what happens when soulfulness um, is is enriched, when soul making happens. That that vertical dimension opens, and also the spreading into the world in cosmopoesis, the, the, the ensouling of the world. So to repeat, uh, you know what we said earlier: soul needs multiple seeing. And to quote William Blake again: "God help us, or God save us from single vision." This is, um, we feel it as we live more deeply. We feel it as a, as, as a necessity of the soul, as something that fertilizes um, our life, our soul, our experience, our sense of being, this multiplicity. And it's what happens when there is the fertilization of that. So a lot, as I've emphasized many times, a lot of really... Um, a lot of sorry. A lot of what I'm emphasizing is this um, wanting to open doors, to um, expand the range, and really get through these examples and through these talks. What uh, and through this retreat, that's um, really want, want want to give some um, possibility to open doors, to support possibilities, suggest possibilities. But it's really possibilities of perception of experience, of sensibility, supported by the conceiving, supported by the practice. So opening the range, as I said much earlier in the retreat, opening the range of perception, of experience, of sensibility. That's the thrust, the movement, that is, uh, I think, so, so important. Because in that opening up, that meditative uh, journey of opening up the range of perception, or vision, if you like, experience. We are opening the soul, the psyche. And this opening of the soul, the psyche, is what the psyche wants and needs. It is 
soul-making, as we said. We're also opening up the range of uh, possibility uh, of practice and of adventure. More fundamentally, we're we're, um, opening up through that uh, exploration the sense of existence itself, the range of the sense of existence, sense of being, of what we are, what the world is, what another is, self, other world, the whole sense of that, the whole experience of that has much more range. So we've not living in a world that's constrained, constricted. And with all that, we're opening up, as I said much earlier in the retreat, um, the range of our sense of beauty, of deep beauty, the possibilities of beauty.